When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. I would like for this podcast to be a place where I can go through the history of religion from the beginning. Uh, This has long been an idea of mine, and of course the question that comes is, where is the beginning? Where does this all start? Uh, If I were a proper historian of religion, or even an archaeologist, I could probably start as far back as the great painted caves, Ice Age caves of France and Spain, like uh, Lascaux, Chauvet, Altamira, and probably even earlier than that, where we find uh, what seemed to be the uh, earliest intentional burials of human beings, which uh, seemed to suggest a belief in uh, an afterlife or of a supernatural power that can be propitiated or even gone to after death. Uh, These all range from uh, uh, 30,000 years ago and uh, beyond that even. Um, And uh, on the historian of religions part, I'm sure that uh, a great deal could be made just by studying uh, rituals, studying the rituals of ancient religions and moving on up to uh, the current ones, uh, those that are still thriving. Um, but it seems to me, and I think even the most faithful religious people would admit this, um, the best way of uh, explaining religion or of illustrating what religion does, uh, what spirituality does, what a belief in God does, a belief in God or the gods, uh, the best way to illustrate what a what a particular culture's religious outlook is, uh, is not even to look at the rituals, but to look at their stories. Um, I've often heard that uh, a ritual is an enactment of a myth. Um, and it seems to me that the uh, to, to, to steal a line from Marlon Brando, I believe from Apocalypse Now, that a good myth, a great, uh, a great perpetual human story, or divine story in this case, uh, is like a diamond thunderbolt straight to the forehead. Uh, It is something that communicates uh, immediately, and you don't need the ritual, and you barely even need uh, the explanation or the historical context. Um, And for me, actually, this can begin with a story. 
my aunt uh, went back to school when she was in her 40s. And we would often go to uh, my aunt and uncle's house uh, for the holidays. And you can imagine, uh, if you've listened to this podcast for very long at all, that uh, after a while, I got tired of being sort of in the crowded room uh, with everyone talking or singing songs or watching TV. And I would uh, just sort of wander around the house. And one of the rooms that I found was a little back room, uh, a little office. And it so happened that my uncle uh, was a dentist. So in the middle of the room, strangely enough, was just a big dentist chair. And uh, near to the chair was a, a shelf of books. And I came to understand later that uh, many of the books on this shelf were the ones that my aunt had uh, collected as she, uh, as she went back to college to continue her studies. And she would let me uh, borrow, I think she actually let me just take home many of these books. And one of them was the old Penguin Classics translation of the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, translated by N.K. Sanders. Um, and Sanders translated the Epic of Gilgamesh into prose. And she sort of uh, filled in the gaps where she thought she could and made it about as coherent and straightforward a story as you could try to make it. Because, of course, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh was written on clay tablets that over the course of thousands of years of history and their eventual, eventual discovery in the 1850s, uh, these tablets broke apart and became fragmented, so there are gaps in the stories. Um, and I would actually recommend, if anyone has never read the Epic of Gilgamesh, to start with the translation of Sanders. And I'll, I will provide a link to all of these, uh, all the different translations that I mention uh, in the post description here. Um, so that was my introduction to Gilgamesh. And that is actually the story that I would start with here. If we want to start uh, by looking at the history of religion, at the history of a, of a people's outlook on the world as it pertains to living in the world and living among the gods or with a sense of divinity in the world, uh, the first story uh, that we start with, at least for me, uh, is Gilgamesh. It's a, a beautiful moving story and it is also uh, its composition is also a lesson in how not only uh, early literature but also how religious scripture as a whole works and I just wanted to read a small paragraph about the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, from one of my earlier books and this is what it says among the Sumerians we find the great Epic of Gilgamesh the most complete version of which was written by a scribe, Sin Leki Unini, sometime, sometime between circa 1300 and 1000 BCE. However, much of this standard text was borrowed and adapted from an older, fragmentary version of the epic, the Old Babylonian version, circa 1800 BCE, which itself bears witness to a wholesale revision of Gilgamesh material to form a connected story composed around the principal themes of kingship, fame, 
and the fear of death. This becomes a familiar pattern wherein smaller, separate tales uh, in religions around the world are always brought together by someone into a great whole, all while the previous versions and additional tales not incorporated continue to be written and rewritten as well and exist alongside their better known counterparts. Now that, that's just uh, the description of one famous story, how uh, the version of it that we have is about 3,000, uh, 3,500 years old, how that version came from one that was about 500 years older than that, and how that version uh, bears witness to having lived for a very long time in various versions itself, uh, going back for thousand or more years ago. Um, this is a pattern that we will find all throughout the stories that I uh, fill this podcast with, and uh, it's just uh, always uh, immensely moving to see when it happens, how people hang on to these stories and make them live again. Um, as that passage just said, Gilgamesh is the story of kingship, fame, and the fear of death. Uh, it is also one of the great stories in the world of simple friendship. Um, I will only be reading uh, a few passages from the poem in this episode and probably uh, the next two. Uh, so it is worth uh, just explaining the beginning of the story. Um, so in the beginning of the story, uh, in the beginning of the poem, uh, Gilgamesh, the king of the ancient city of Uruk, is described. Uh, his city is described, and uh, his exploits are described. He's a king, he's rich, he's famous, he's powerful. Uh, by all accounts, he uh, uh, is young, he's virile, he's uh, sort of stealing the wives of the men of the town. And uh, one of the uh, mothers, uh, I believe, of the wives goes to the gods and says, um, you know, I understand this man is a ruler and uh, perhaps uh, he has been divinely placed in this position, but uh, his behavior is still getting uh, quite out of hand. Uh, can you please do something about this? And what they decide to do is to create um, a, uh, a match for Gilgamesh. And this match uh, comes in the form of a man named Enkidu, who starts the story as a man living in nature, a man out of the wild. And uh, that is where I will begin reading the poem from the poem in a few minutes, uh, where we have the creation of Enkidu and his eventual uh, uh, he is eventually uh, civilized in two very important ways, where he uh, meets and has a relationship, so to say, with a woman, and is then given proper food and, I believe, clothing. And that is what uh, releases him from the power of merely living in nature. And uh, he is brought to the city first to uh, contend and fight with Gilgamesh, and after they realize that they are sort of uh, mirror images of each other, um, they become fast friends, 
and they go on their adventures. And uh, and at some point, Enkidu dies. And all of this will be taken up in a future uh, reading, a future episode. But it's enough to say that, uh, at least to start, that uh, while the poem is about power and fame and the fear of death, it is also uh, an immensely moving story about uh, simple friendship. And with that, here is, uh, we will pick up the story here a few pages into the poem with the creation of Enkidu. Let them summon Aruru, the Great One. She it was created them, mankind so numerous. Let her create the equal of Gilgamesh, one mighty in strength, and let him vie with him so Aruk may be rested. They summoned Aruru, the Great One. You, Aruru, created mankind. Now fashion what Anu has thought of. Let him be a match for the storm of his heart. Let him vie with each other so Uruk may be rested. The goddess Aruru heard these words, what Anu had thought of, and she fashioned that within her. The goddess Aruru, she washed her hands, took a pinch of clay, and threw it down in the wild. In the wild she created Enkidu, the hero, offspring of silence, knit strong by Ninurta. All his body is matted with hair, he bears long tresses like those of a woman. The hair of his head grows thickly as barley. He knows not people, nor even a country. Coated in hair like the gods of the animals, with the gazelles he grazes on grasses, joining the throng with the game of the waterhole, his heart delighting with the beasts in the water. A hunter, a trapper man, did come upon him by the waterhole. One day, a second and then a third, he came upon him by the waterhole. When the hunter saw him, his expression froze, but he, with his herds, he went back to his lair. The hunter was troubled, subdued and silent. His mood was despondent, his features gloomy. In his heart there was sorrow. His face resembled one come from afar. The hunter opened his mouth to speak, saying to his father, my father, there was a man came by the waterhole, mightiest in the land, strength he possesses. His strength is as mighty as a rock from the sky. Over the hills he roams all day. Always with the herd he grazes on grasses. Always his tracks are found by the waterhole. I am afraid, and I dare not approach him. He fills in the pits that I myself dig. He pulls up the snares that I lay. He sets free from my grasp all the beasts of the field. He stops me doing the work of the wild. His father opened his mouth to speak, saying to the hunter, My son, in the city of Uruk, go seek out Gilgamesh. In his presence, his strength is as mighty as a rock from the sky. Take the road. Set your face towards Uruk. Do not rely on the strength of a man. Go, my son and fetch Shamhat the harlot. Her allure is a match for even the mighty. When the herd comes down to the waterhole, she should strip off her raiment to reveal her charms. He will see her and will approach her. His herd will spurn him, though he grew up amongst it. 
paying heed to the advice of his father, the hunter went off, set out on the journey. He took the road, set his fate toward a rook. Before Gilgamesh the king, he spoke these words. There was a man came by the waterhole, mightiest in the land, strength he possesses. His strength is as mighty as a rock from the sky. Over the hills he roams all day, always with the herds he grazes on grasses. Always his tracks are found by the waterhole. I am afraid, and I dare not approach him. He fills in the pits that I myself dig. He pulls up the snares that I lay. He sets free from my grasp all the beasts of the field. He stops me doing the work of the wild. Said Gilgamesh to him, to the hunter, Go, hunter, take with you Shamhat the harlot. When the herd comes down to the waterhole, she should strip off her raiment to reveal her charms. He will see her and will approach her. His herds will spurn him, though he grew up amongst it. Off went the hunter, taking Shamhat the harlot. They set out on the road. They started the journey. On the third day they came to their destination. Hunter and harlot sat down there to wait. One day, and a second, they waited by the waterhole. Then the herd came down to drink the water. The game arrived, their hearts delighting in water, and in Kidu also, born in the uplands. With the gazelles, he grazed on grasses, joining the throng with the game of the waterhole, his heart delighting with the beasts in the water. Then Shamhat saw him, the child of nature, the savage man from the midst of the wild. This is she, Shamhat. Uncradle your bosom, bear your sex. Let him take in your charms. Do not recoil, but take in his scent. He will see you and will approach you. Spread your clothing so he may lie on you. Do for the man the work of a woman. Let his passion caress and embrace you. His herd will spurn him, though he grew up amongst it. Shamhat unfastened the cloth of her loins. She bared her sex, and he took in her charms. She did not recoil. She took in his scent. She spread her clothing, and he lay upon her. She did for the man the work of a woman. His passion caressed and embraced her. For six days and seven nights, and Kidu was erect, as he coupled with Shamhat. When, with her delights, he was fully sated, he turned his gaze to his herd, the gazelles saw Enkidu. They started to run. The beasts of the field shied away from his presence. Enkidu had defiled his body so pure, his legs stood still, though his herd was in motion. Enkidu was weakened, could not run as before, but now he had reason and wide understanding. He came back and sat at the feet of the harlot, watching the harlot observing her features. And here, Shamhat, who is uh, sort of a, a sacred prostitute, um, tells him what uh, Gilgamesh has been doing in the city of Uruk. And Enkidu becomes enraged that, uh, at how he is treating his people. And they agree that they should go to Uruk and that uh, Enkidu should confront him. But before then, Enkidu is completely tamed. First, uh, that first happened by 
uh, having sex with a woman and um, by uh, embracing, you might say, human nature rather than nature itself. And now they come to a place where uh, some shepherds are living, and this is what happens in the shepherd's camp. While the two of them together were making love, he forgot the wild where he was born. For seven days and seven nights, and Enkidu was erect and coupled with Shamhat. The harlot opened her mouth, saying to Enkidu, As I look at you, Enkidu, you are like a god. Why with the beasts do you wander the wild? Come, I will lead you to Uruk, the town square, to the sacred temple, the home of Anu. Enkidu, arise, let me take you to the temple of Ayana, the home of Anu, where men are engaged in labors of skill. You, too, like a man, will find a place for yourself. Her words he heard, her speech found favor. The counsel of a woman struck home in his heart. She stripped and clothed him in part of her garment, the other part she put on herself. And then, by the, by the hand she took him, like a god she led him, to the shepherd's camp, the site of the sheep pen. The band of shepherds was gathered around him, talking about him amongst themselves. This fellow, how like in build he is to Gilgamesh, tall in stature, proud as a battlement. For sure it's Enkidu, born in the uplands. His strength is as mighty as a rock from the sky. And it says, Bread they set before him, ale they set before him. Enkidu ate not bread, but looked askance. And here Andrew George notes that uh, the story becomes fragmented here, and the best way to finish it is taken from a different version of the story, which says this. How to eat bread, Enkidu knew not. How to drink ale, he had never been shown. The harlot opened her mouth, saying to Enkidu, Eat the bread, Enkidu, essential to life. Drink the ale, the lot of the land. Enkidu ate the bread until he was sated. He drank the ale, a full seven goblets. His mood became free. He started to sing. His heart grew merry. His face lit up. The barber groomed his body so hairy. Anointed with oil, he turned into a man. He put on a garment, became like a warrior. He took up his weapon to do battle with lions. So that is just a very small section from the beginning of the poem. And it is one that I think uh, can show immediately how deeply human uh, a poem that is three or four or even 5,000 years old can be, even if we naturally do have reservations about uh, some aspects of the story, which I don't think would be very hard to pinpoint. One of the things I forgot to mention is that the version of Gilgamesh that I'm reading from here is the one made by Andrew George and published by Penguin Classics in the early 2000s. Um, I mentioned earlier that the poem Gilgamesh as it's come down to us uh, is very fragmentary because of the way it was uh, written and preserved on clay tablets that have naturally become uh, broken 
uh, over the course of thousands of years. And what many uh, scholars and poets have done since to sort of fill in the poem and make it as rich and complete as possible is to gather together uh, all the versions of the story that we have. And when there is a gap in the so-called standard version, they fill in that gap with whatever seems to fit from other versions of the poem that exist uh, in neighboring countries and areas during that time. And the wonderful thing that Andrew George does, uh, to my mind, is that he identifies the very moment that he breaks off, or the very moment, I guess, that the standard ed edition breaks off and becomes fragmentary. And he tells you when he is moving into using another version of the story that has survived. And uh, even with the very last scene I just read, we can see how important uh, retelling and making additions or deletions to a, uh, a more standard version of the story, how important that technique became with uh, ancient and religious literature. If you recall, uh, the very first time uh, in reading from the standard version, where we read of Enkidu and Shamhat uh, making love for seven days, and then Enkidu wakes up and suddenly realizes that uh, he is no longer a part of nature. In that version of the story, he wakes up alone and has that realization alone. In the version that ended uh, this reading just now, there was another version of that same event. And in this case, it was Shamhat who wakes up with him and sort of hints to him that he is entering a new kind of life. And it's just a very small hint of how these things go with, uh, with folklore, with myth, with any kind of story that is living and being retold constantly. Um, I've also heard a very interesting fact that uh, it's possible that the friendship that develops between Enkidu and Gilgamesh uh, probably did influence the poet of the Iliad in his uh, presentation of the friendship between Achilles and Patroclus, and also that the idea, the archetype of someone like Enkidu, uh, could very well have influenced uh, how uh, the character of Esau is portrayed in the book of Genesis, who is also uh, someone who is considered a sort of a wild person out of nature when compared to his supposedly more civilized brother. Um, and I just want to say at the very end here that I hope that this uh, collection of great myths that I want to record here for this podcast will in some way uh, not only become the backbone of the podcast, but it might even at some point overtake it entirely. Um, I read a lot of contemporary poetry, and by that I mean poetry written, I guess, within the last 100, 150 years or so. Um, if you're talking about something like Gilgamesh from three or four thousand years ago, 150 years ago does still seem fairly contemporary. So that, uh, so that while I learn a great deal from contemporary poetry, it often strikes me, and it strikes me now as I'm going back and forth between reading poetry written more recently and uh, 
the poetry of the great myths and of the great religions, it still somehow strikes me that the lessons that contemporary poetry teaches me are much less. Um, I can read a very powerful poem by a, a famous poet who I will not name, and it strikes me that that poem, or any contemporary poem you can think of probably, is ending just when a poem like Gilgamesh is beginning. Uh, there seems to be a great reticence and a great caution and a strange sort of, I hate to use the word weakness, but I can't think of a better word right now, um, in a poetry that does not think that poetry should uh, have a wider place in the world, that it shouldn't tell the story of history or anything higher than uh, something merely autobiographical or merely political. Um, this is all very generalized, but I just hope that uh, by presenting some of this ancient poetry and presenting it even in its fragmentary form and in translation and all the rest and with all the baggage that comes from history and anything as old as this, that we might, that poets might uh, learn another way of doing things. Um, I found in my own life that uh, the kind of poetry that I'm drawn to and the kind of poetry that I've been drawn to write has necessarily become narrative poetry. I still believe it is entirely possible to catch an audience and to catch a reader and to create something fulfilling and honest and real by simply telling a story. And by this point, I realized that I almost sound like uh, some sort of, uh, or very nearly a religious fanatic who believes that he has found the right way to do things. I don't really feel that way at all, but I do, I don't think this is the right way to go, but I do think it is a fruitful way to go. And I hope that perhaps other poets will drop some of the fads and maybe learn from the very oldest poetry why it is that poetry was taken up at all and invented at all. Um, in the case of Gilgamesh or Homer or Dante or the Greek tragedies or Virgil or the mythologies of people like the Celts or the Norse or the Kalevala very recently in Finland, um, it is incredible to believe that poetry once sustained and expressed civilizations and entire cultures. And there is a, a whole backstory as to why, uh, why poetry may have uh, lost this position in a culture, but it is worth thinking about. And one way it is worth thinking about is by listening to the poems and the stories that were held in such high regard. And I hope to keep doing that with these great myths going forward. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. 
Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.